Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Hitman Chronicles. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver, and today we're going to talk a little wrestling. Of course, it's a boxing podcast, so we'll be talking about the Jaime Mugaya John Ryder fight that just ended 15 minutes ago. A very, very explosive Q&A session in which I talk about that piece of shit, Vince McMahon. And my 17th greatest fight in boxing history, Danny Little Red Lopez versus Mike Ayala from June 17th, 1979. Now, before I get to the Phoenix, Arizona main event between Jaime Munguia and John Ryder in the 168-pound division, let me talk about the Royal Rumble. Um, it was per- it was timed perfectly. I came home from work right before the Royal Rumble started. I checked out my illegal feed to see if the Jaime Mugia fight was about to start. And this god-awful Alante's Fox fight was on. It was in the fourth round. I said, man, fuck this. Let me go to the Royal Rumble because you still had Oscar Colazzo fight and then you'll have the Jaime Mugia fight. Well, I watched the Royal Rumble. The Rumble itself, the Men's Rumble, and the first half was, you know, a lot of stalling, a lot of uh, guys, you know, uh, just killing time. But then when you had the final six, when you had Drew McIntyre, no, the final four, Drew McIntyre, Gunther, Cody, and CM Punk, it was tremendous. Um, Braun Breaker really impressed me in this um, Royal Rumble, and Braun Breaker, Rick Steiner's son, It's going to be a superstar. I mean, sooner than later, I think the face of the future for the WWE are Gunther and Braun Breaker. That's going to be a phenomenal feud, and they had some great spots in the Rumble. It came down to Cody and Punk, and they put on a clinic of psychology. Oh, my goodness. It was tremendous. And Cody Rhodes finally put... Punk over the top rope and won for the second year in a row. Who's Cody going to wrestle at WrestleMania? What's going on with The Rock? What's going to happen? Well, I guess you'll have to tune in to Raw and SmackDown next week to find out. Because I'm no wrestling insider. And there's certain people I can't fucking trust. Because they always are being lied to and feeding the uh, wrestling fans lies And they're supposed to be so-called experts Fuck them Alright uh, Kudos to Cody Rose Great storytelling again by Triple H And the and the powers that be At the WWE That whole, that, that uh, run creative This was well done 48,000 fans out there In uh, Tropicana Field uh, The WWE, WWE is red hot Meanwhile that piece of shit organization AEW all effeminate wrestling is just straight garbage they they can't they can't fill up 2000 fans never mind 48000 fans and i know people out there screaming well, they, they had 80000 plus in london england shut the fuck up what about america all right i don't want to hear it and more about AEW next week when i, I tackle a certain um so-called wrestling historian slash expert who kisses their ass day in and day out. But we'll talk about that next week. Let's get on to boxing and let's get on to the main event for Phoenix, Arizona. Jaime Munguia versus John Ryder. Uh, Sergio Mora is the single worst 
color commentator in the history of the sport. Um, he makes Timothy Bradley sound like a prime Roy Jones when Roy Jones, who's the greatest color commentator in the history of the sport, was commentating for HBO. He's fucking horrible. He mentioned, oh, John Ryder is is doing a great job of staying off the ropes. He's not allowing, uh, he's not allowing Mugia to trip against the ropes. He got staggered twice up against the ropes, and he got dropped twice in the second round and in the fourth round when he was up against. What the fuck is Sergio Moore talking about? And then when he got decimated, he was up against the ropes. This fight was a one-sided beating. I gave Ryder two rounds. Um, I don't know what the hell Sergio Mora and Chris Maddox was looking at. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, the zone has a four-man booth. They got a goddamn talk show. A four-man booth. All you need is two announcers. Hell, if you listen to my historical overviews of Muhammad Ali, Marvin Hagler, and our Tommy Hearns, I do the recreation of the play-by-play by myself. If you have a guy that knows the sport, you could save money by having one guy announce the fight. If they were to take all four of these goofballs that they use, Mannix, Barry Jones, uh, 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 Sergio Moron, and Todd Grisham, fire them, take all four of their salaries, give it to Jim Lampley, and let him do the fights by himself, you'd be... You have a greater call. Jim Lampley knows the difference between a cross and a hook. And Jim Lampley is a boxing historian and is still up to date with the sport and knows the players and knows who's great and knows what's great and knows what's horrible. Not these four idiots who said Ryder was coming on. Ryder was not coming on. I gave him I gave him the third round. I gave him the third round and I gave him the seventh round. That's it. Every other round was all Mungia banging the body. And kudos to Freddie Roach. He's got Mungia using the jab effectively for the first time in Mungia's career. Mungia set up everything. He would double jab and throw that straight right cross down the pipe. He hurt Ryder several times and he stopped him in the ninth round. Something Canelo couldn't do. I had predicted a decision win by Mungia. I didn't see a stoppage coming. Mugia offensively is a better offensive fighter than he was before Freddie Roach took over his career, which Freddie Roach, as great trainers will do, will try and emphasize his strength. Strengths. The one uh, flaw that Jaime Mugai has that Freddie Roach cannot fix, Jaime Mugai's defense is horrible. Ryder hit him with shots that Mugia had no uh, way of stopping, that Mugia couldn't stop and when he fights an elite super middleweight whether it's Benavides, Morel, uh, Diego Pacheco or the true boogeyman at 168 pounds the undisputed champion Saul Canelo Alvarez he's not beating those guys with that shoddy defense I don't care how good that jazz become or oh, also I gotta give him gear credit this is the best body punching I've ever seen him do in a fight as well as Throwing that jab, but Mungia's defense is going to eventually turn that undefeated record, a record with mostly cab drivers and Uber drivers that he beat up on. 43 wins, 40 of those wins are against Uber drivers, all right? When he finally fights somebody live, somebody with uh, elite skill at 168, and we're talking the Davids, 
Benavides Morel. We're talking Diego Pacheco, and we're talking Canelo Alvarez. I don't think he's getting Canelo Alvarez. Fucking Chris Mannix and, and Todd Grisham. Oh, Canelo, were you watching? If Canelo was watching, he was laughing his fucking ass off. You stupid fucking buffoons. No matter how much you try and hype up this guy, he's not a great fighter. He's a very good fighter. He's improved offensively, but he cannot beat Canelo. Stop with the nonsense. Canelo's going to bang that body like a drum and knock him out. But uh, Mungia won't be getting Canelo this year. Uh, Canelo has two more fights left on his PBC deal. Mungia, uh, best bet's probably a fight with Edgar Belanga, and hopefully he could put Edgar Belanga in the hospital and, and out of our fucking lives for good. That's probably the big fight that he's looking at. I don't even consider that a big fight. That's a massive mismatch. Uh, because one thing Mungaya has that uh, Belanga doesn't have is a very good left jab. Mungia's left jab worked very well together. Kudos to Freddie Roach for uh, implementing that in Mungia's offense. It's going to make him a tougher fighter to beat, but he is very beatable. That defense is shot. And if you can box and throw punches and bunches like a David Morrell, like a David Benavides, like a Canelo Alvarez, like a Diego Pacheco, they should be able to handle Jaime Munguia as long as they don't get caught with anything stupid. The Hitman Chronicles Fighter of the Week is Jaime Munguia uh, because he went in and he did something that Canelo Alvarez couldn't do, that Callum Smith couldn't do. He put John Ryder out. He dropped him twice in the ninth round with devastating right crosses. And the corner was trying to stop the fight, but the referee's back was turned. And the first time I ever saw the ring, the, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what you, what you call the guy that, that, uh, the timekeeper ring the bell. He rang the bell before the referee could stop the fight. And Ryder stopped defending himself and, Mungia was still throwing punches as he should because the referee didn't stop the fight. Forget the fact that the timekeeper rang the bell. Uh, horrible job. And the referee in tonight's fight was too active. It's like he wanted his camera time. He kept breaking them and saying, hey, stop holding it. He was very dramatic, and I guess he wanted his screen time. But ladies and gentlemen, Jaime Mungia continues to win and continues to see another day uh when when and if he gets that big fight he's getting knocked the fuck out and now on to the ask rob silver portion of the podcast now i was going to answer a question about dave Meltzer that my brother half pint Asked several months ago. I never got to it. It's going to be a long segment. But in light of what has occurred in the last 48 hours with Vince McMahon, and I got to give uh, Dave Meltzer credit. He's done a tremendous job the last two days in reporting this sordid illegal acts by this motherfucking piece of shit Vince McMahon. That I will leave my answer to Half Pine's question about Dave Meltzer's credibility next week. I will answer that next week. This week, it's not the right time to uh, talk about the credibility of Dave Meltzer when he's done a tremendous job reporting 
as as well as Jim Cornette and Bryant Last and several great uh wrestling reporters on the sordid affairs. The Wall Street Journal broke the story. So let me talk quickly, Half Pint, and those who follow pro wrestling about this piece of shit Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon is no better than a Sean Puff Daddy Coles. Matter of fact, he's worse because he's got more money, more influence, and the shit that he did to this woman, Miss Jalen Grant, and ladies and gentlemen, while I'm not 100% sure, I'm 99% sure, because I don't see any pictures of this woman, and I hope no pictures of her surface. This is a black woman that Vince McMahon tortured for the last, what, three years? What he did to her? And I see a lot of people out there making excuses. There's no excuse for the for the sexual and physical abuse of a woman, for using a woman as a toy, for uh, psychological and physical torture. I, I'm not going to debate this shit with people. I've seen people on social media roast this woman. Oh, she's looking for another payout. Oh, she signed an NDA. He violated the terms of the NDA when he stopped paying this woman. The minute he stopped paying this woman, the minute the payment, payment stopped, she contacted her attorney, and her attorney was like, well, let's put the screws to this motherfucker. Now, Vince McMahon was, was forced to resign from TKO or Endeavor, whatever the fuck the name of that company that runs WWE now. Bye-bye. Um, hopefully... This man dies a sudden death. Hopefully we find him dead in the bathtub because he is right now amongst the five worst men on the planet. I got to put him alongside Rudy Giuliani and Sean Puff Daddy Combs as living uh, as amongst the living who are the worst men in the fucking world. Fuck Vince McMahon. Fuck what he did, and I hope that the woman that he abused, that he uh, put through hell the last few years, I hope one day she's able to uh, live a normal life. I don't know. When you read the sort of details of what this man put this woman through, and then the actions of others, and I'm talking... John Laurinaitis and Brock Lesnar and their um, role in the treatment of this woman. Man, fuck Brock Lesnar. Fuck Brock Lesnar. John Laurinaitis, I don't know what the fuck that motherfucker's problem is. These are married men taking turns on a woman. And ladies and gentlemen, I never blame the victim. She is a victim. I don't give a goddamn if tomorrow the terms of the of the agreement was that she would be she would inherit all of McMahon's fortune. Not enough for what he put her through. Fuck you, Vince McMahon. Kudos to the Wall Street Journal, uh, Brian Lass, Jim Cornette, Wade Keller, and of course, Uncle Dave Meltzer. Dave, 
two thumbs up. Dave, I will talk about you next week, but this week I can't talk about your credibility about a, another subject when you hit that nail on the head with this one. So uh, kudos to uh, Mr. Meltzer. Kudos to Mr. Lass. Kudos to Mr. Cornette. Kudos to Mr. Keller. And kudos 1,000% to the Wall Street Journal. Um, um, I'm not giving any credit to the uh, end Endeavor uh, owners. The people who run Endeavor, what was this motherfucker's name? Ari Emanuel. He's part of the S Secret Six Society. They knew all along what Vince McMahon did. And they didn't do anything until shit hit the fan the last 48 hours when the truth was finally revealed. This motherfucker should have n never been allowed to be on this board of directors. And um, I'm sure Triple H and his wife Stephanie knew all about it. So, all of those guys, fuck you. And now on to the Ask Rob Silver portion of the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want your questions answered here on the Hitman Chronicles, hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter. Hashtag A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-O-V-A on Twitter. All right. First question is from... AJ Hip Hop Kid, a loyal listener, a great hip hop head, a great boxing fan. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Aaron Pryor took that spectacular right hand from Alexis Aguayo in the 13th round. Well, AJ asked, what is your opinion on the whole situation with Panama Lewis requesting between rounds in the corner his own, uh, his own mixed water bottle? And what he what he's talking about it, it's on it's on tape it's on videotape and you hear the audio where in between rounds I believe it's between the 13th and 14th round I'd have to rewatch it I haven't I will rewatch that fight later on this year when I do the uh, recreation of the play by play but even that I won't know because uh I mute the, the I mute the uh, audio when I redo the play by play but it's either between the 12th and 13th or 13th and 14th. 14th rounds where Panama Lewis asked for that special mixed bottle to have Aaron Pryor drink out of it. I don't know what was in that bottle. I don't know what I will say, uh, AJ, is that I think it had no bearing on what happened. I mean, that right hand he took from Alexa Aguayo, he could have been coked up, doped up on, on PSP. Or he could have shot himself with heroin. He could have smoked weed. He could have been drunk as a skunk. He took that right hand because nothing was going to stop him from beating Aguayo that night. And as far as that special mix, what could have been in there uh, uh, that could have helped him? Caffeine? Maybe gave him a little rush? I don't know. Nothing could have had him do what he did that night when he knocked out Aguayo in the 14th round. So, um... I always thought that that was uh, that that was hyperbole on so-called boxing experts' uh, thoughts. And my father, and my father and I loved Aguayo. We wanted Aguayo to win, but we weren't going to use any excuses. What we saw that night in Aaron Pryor was possibly the most naturally gifted boxer that ever lived. Once again, thank you, AJ. 
uh, for another great question that you posed to the podcast. Okay. Um, let me go to my other account on Twitter because for some reason I have two accounts on Twitter. I have the Hitman Chronicles that focuses on boxing and the Legends of Sports and Music that focuses on my podcast dealing with uh, historical overviews of careers of great musicians and great athletes. Let's go to my Ask Rob Silver uh, session. Okay. Here it goes. Great question from Soldier Boy. Soldier Boy posted this on Twitter, Soldier Boy 11, question of the day. And I love this question so much that I decided to uh, answer it on the pod. His question was, if you could sit ringside at any fight in the history of boxing, what would it be? I loved Rob Hill, frequent contributor to the podcast, answer. He said Leonard Hearns won or Ali Foreman. And those are great answers. Great answers. Those definitely would be on my short list if I thought of what fights I would love to go back in a time machine and go see and sit ringside. But my answer wouldn't be either one. My answer would be uh, an event that occurred before I was born. I was six years old when Ali Foreman happened. And I was 13 when Leonard Hearns happened. And I would have loved to have been ringside at both. Um, Leonard Hearns would have broke my heart. But it would have been a great atmosphere out there in Vegas. But my answer would have been February 25th, 1964. February 25th, 1964. Muhammad Ali. Versus Sonny Liston. Liston was the heavyweight champ of the world. He was an eight to one underdog. Our favorite, my bad, Cassius Marcellus Clay, later known as Muhammad Ali, was an eight to one underdog. I would have long. I would have loved to go to have been alive in my twenties, front row, watching that fight, and preferably with my father. Because my father at that point in time had just turned 16 years old. And as I mentioned, you guys can go back on the archives of this po- of, of this podcast, Hitman Chronicle- Chronicles, um, on my Greatest Upsets in Boxing History series that I released a few months ago. During the summer of 2023, I talked about what my father said go up going into that fight because my father was the only guy in his neighborhood in his family that thought Ali was going to master Sonny Liston, that Sonny Liston was made for Ali. All the experts said that Ali wouldn't go two rounds. I would have loved to have been in ringside with my father there and saw the joy in his face the first couple of rounds when Ali is totally dominating Liston, making Liston miss and landing that beautiful jab and right cross counter at will. Then... I would have had to calm him down when Ali was blinded middle of the fight and had to run because Sonny Liston had put lint in Ali's eye illegally and Ali couldn't see for a round and a half. Then I would have loved to have seen the look on his face when Ali, after clearing his senses, beat Sonny Liston with combination after combination in the sixth round. And then the minute Liston quit in his corner after that round ended, 
I think my father and I would have snuck in the ring and hugged Ali. I don't care if security would have caught it, would have, would have brought us down. But that's how much my father would have loved seeing that fight and how much I would have loved being with my father at that fight. So my answer, big man, is Ali versus Liston. Cassius Marcellus Clay, defeat of Sonny Liston, February 25th, 1964. That's the one fight I wish I could have a time machine to go back in time and sit at ringside. And watch Ali put on. Because other than when he got blinded for that round and a half, he put on a masterful display of boxing. Made Sonny Liston miss all night long and landed combination after combination. And Ali's jab was on point. That right cross was was uh, quick and concise and hurting Liston over and over again. For those who want to hear more about that, and I do a play-by-play -play of that entire fight, go to my archives and check out Greatest Upsets in Boxing History, Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay versus Sonny Liston. All right, I think I've got one more question before we go into the greatest knockout, I mean, greatest fights in boxing history. All right, and it's from my, my buddy Kobe. Here he is. It's a, it's a non-boxing question. Please address the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame voters and their hypocrisy. In what world is Gary Sheffield not Hall of Fame worthy? Gary Sheffield is another guy I compare to Barry Bonds, where I think he did enough to put up Hall of Fame numbers before he began his steroid use. Gary Sheffield began using steroids, I believe, right around the time he got with Balco and... Uh, Barry Bonds in the early 2000s They became tight They started training together And um, Sheffield has over 500 career home runs And Sheffield was one of the most dangerous hitters for years He had that violent at bat Comes from baseball royalty As his uncle is Dwight Gooden Doc Gooden Legendary New York Mets pitcher Um Man, I agree with you. I agree with you. Let me talk about the hypocrisy of Major League Baseball Hall of Fame uh, voters. Pete Rose is not in. Pete Rose is a Hall of Famer. I don't give a fuck about his gambling. Um, I don't care if he bet on the Reds when he managed the Reds. All of that occurred after he put up the record number of hits in the history of Major League Baseball, a record that's never going to be broken, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I don't care how much nutrition, whatever, you're, you're not coming close to that record. Pete Rose, Pete Rose was the baseball player that everybody wanted to be because he was the short, undersized, he didn't look athletic kid that came into the major leagues in the early 60s, played for his hometown Cincinnati Reds team, and was just hungry for baseball. I remember back in 1978, um, one of the early 2020 episodes, they did a feature on Pete Rose during the height of his 44-game hitting streak, which, you know, had the, the, the nation, the nation was watching every night on, I mean, not watching because, Back then, we didn't have cable, but reading the next day newspaper or watching the nightly news to see if he continued his hitting streak. Matter of fact, 
when the hitting streak was ended by the Atlanta Braves after in his 45th game after having a 44-game hitting streak, stations across the country would pipe in the Cincinnati Reds or Atlanta Braves TV feed to show. I saw it while watching a Yankee game. Or was it a Met game? It was either I was either watching a Met game or the Yankee game, and soon as the game went off, they piped in the feed from either the Atlanta or Cincinnati Red TV station that was showing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, back in 1978, every game wasn't televised. A lot of games you just heard on the radio, but thankfully that game was being televised, and I got to see. Pete Rose hitting streak end and it wasn't the first game there were several games during that week that they kept showing as he was going for that 56 game hitting streak record of course the legendary Joe DiMaggio has that record uh Pete Rose played in a small town in Cincinnati is from a, a small a small city not small town Cincinnati's a the major city in Ohio I believe I'm not sure which which is the bigger metropolis, Cincinnati or Cleveland, but it's a it's for Ohio. Those are the two big cities, so I'm not going to call it a small town. But Pete Rose was from a small city, played for a small city in the Cincinnati Reds. And 1975, 1976, they won back-to-back World Series. Pete Rose with Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan, the greatest baseball team my father ever saw. He said that team had all-stars at damn near every position. And my father loved Pete Rose because he could tell Pete Rose gave it his all. And ladies and gentlemen, Pete Rose, after he retired from baseball, after he was forced to retire from baseball, after he did some prison time for a, Tax evasion, I believe. I could be mistaken. I know Daryl Strawberry did. Pete Rose became friends with many athletes that were uh, criticized and ostracized by the media. Daryl Strawberry, uh, Mike Tyson, James Lights Out Tony. These guys befriended Pete Rose and Pete Rose befriended them. It's a damn shame that Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame. Kobe, there are many examples. Uh, the guy that went blind, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I know the Black Sox scandal was a huge black eye on baseball, and Pete Rose came, I mean, Pete Rose, Babe Ruth came in and saved the day back in 1921, 22, 23, and so forth. But Shoeless Joe Jackson, there have been many reports that he didn't even take money. His numbers are ridiculous. Over 350 career batting average. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Pete Rose and Shoeless Joe Jackson, Gary Sheffield, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, these guys belong in the Hall of Fame, and it's fucking ridiculous that the Hall of Fame does not have those guys. We're talking about five of the greatest baseball players that ever lived. Not in your Hall of Fame. Ridiculous. 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 I'm not going to debate this with anybody. It's my opinion. All right. That ends this week's uh, Q&A session. For those that want their questions answered on the pod, it's hashtag ask 
Rob Silver. Let me before I go, let me triple check. Make sure there's no other questions. That was uh I answered those questions last week. The only question I need to answer is my man Half Pint's question. The reputable Dave Meltzer, this is not the week to answer that question, big man, but I will in full detail answer that question next week. Right? We got a one-week moratorium on the Wrestling Observatory's Dave Meltzer. Now on. Oh, I made a mistake. Last week I said that my Archie Moore versus Yvonne Durrell was my 17th greatest fight of all time, according to... The OG Rob Silver, no, it's my 18th greatest fight in boxing history. Today, I'm going to talk about my 17th greatest fight in boxing history. So a correction on that. And that would be, let me make sure I get this right. Oh, my search. Let me see. Here we go. Come on. Ah, See, this is what happens when you got, well, um, let me redo the search. These articles that I've that I read on the podcast that I wrote used to be on the fightgamemedia.com website. They uh deleted all their articles. It's now just a video blog uh website. But I held on to the to the to the drafts. I've got the drafts in my files and let's go to my number 17 greatest fight in boxing history. Let me get it. June 17, 1979, the Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. Danny Little Red Lopez defending his WBC featherweight championship against rising uh, contender Mike Ayala. As I wrote, Danny Little Red Lopez, despite the, despite the fact that he hailed from Utah, was one of the most popular fighters to ever fight in Los Angeles. Danny followed his brother, welterweight contender Ernie Red Lopez, to Los Angeles and fought 32 of his first 34 pro fights there. The L.A. fight fans loved the aggressive power punching style of Danny. Danny, despite being a towering 5'8 for a featherweight, would rather brawl inside than use his superior height at 126 pounds to fight from the outside. After defeating David Cody in Cody's native Ghana to win the WBC Featherweight title, the 26-year-old Lopez successfully defended the title six times, all by knockout, before traveling to San Antonio, Texas, to defend against that city's native son and the number one contender to the, <coughs> to the WBC title, 21-year-old San Antonio native Mike Ayala. Ayala was a gifted boxer who had only lost one time in his 22 pro fights. I made a mistake if I said he was undefeated. I correct myself. Before my father and I sat down to watch the Lopez Ayala fight on a small black and white TV, my father explained to me how Lopez always had problems with fighters who could move and box. He stated the fact that since Lopez was all offense and no defense, he could be frustrated all night by Ayala's move, moving. Ayala would cause Lopez frustration, but not in the way my father predicted. The first round saw both boxers take turns landing solid combinations. Ayala attempted to box from the outside, but beginning in round two, decided to employ the rope-a-dope strategy. In rounds two, four, and five, Ayala hurt Lopez several times with counter-left hooks off the ropes. 
he would sit on the ropes and counter the ultra-aggressive Lopez at will. However, beginning in round three, Lopez began hurting Ayala to the body with tremendous hooks. Round three was the only round Lopez clearly won early on. My father proclaimed after the fifth round that there was no way Ayala was going to beat Lopez with this strategy because Lopez's body punches would eventually weaken him to the point where his punches would have no impact. The next two rounds were textbook display of body punching by Lopez. He kept digging right hands to Ayala's ribcage that was hurting Ayala. Late in the seventh round, Lopez knocked Ayala down with a vicious combination to the chin. I told my father at that moment that Ayala couldn't last much longer. The following round, Ayala proved me wrong as he hurt Lopez several times with left hooks coming off the ropes as he was continuing to employ his rope-a-dope strategy. Late in the ninth, after a furious exchange of punches, Ayala hurt Lopez with a blistering right cross. The 10th round was just an all-out war as both men took turns blasting the other with power punches. There was no way Ayala could keep up with this pace. Early in round 11, Lopez landed a big left hook that dropped Ayala. Referee Carlos Padilla had erroneously counted Ayala out. Ayala's father and trainer Tony argued with Padilla that his son had gotten up before the count of 10. After discussing it with the WBC representatives at ringside, Padilla, Carlos Padilla, ordered the fight to restart. Then Padilla called an end to the round because the timekeeper had lost track of how much time was left in the round. My father told me that that was the first time he had ever seen a fight restart after it was declared over. When the action resumed, the war continued like it never ended. Rounds 12 through 14 saw one furious exchange after another. Ayala was fighting with a broken nose and still giving as good as he was getting. Early in the 15th round, Lopez staggered Ayala with a wicked left hook. He then batted Ayala against the ropes before finally knocking him out with a dynamic right cross. Lopez was never the same after this fight. Eight months later, he lost his title and subsequent rematch in one-sided fights to future legend and the greatest Mexican fighter I've ever seen, Salvador Sanchez. Lopez retired at the age of 28 after the second fight with, with uh, Sanchez. Twelve years later, Lopez made an ill-advised comeback against a fighter who had a record of 11 wins and 27 losses. That stiff of a fighter knocked out Lopez in the second round. Wisely, Lopez went back into permanent retirement. Ayala re revealed a few years after his war with Lopez that he was high on heroin that day he fought. Maybe that's the reason he camped out on the ropes the majority of the fight. Ayala would receive two more world title opportunities in his career, getting knocked out in both. He retired in 1991 at the age of 33. Despite an ongoing battle with addiction, Ayala currently runs a boxing gym and is a trainer in his hometown of San Antonio, Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, the next couple of episodes will be the continuation of the Life and Times of Thomas Hitman Hearns series. In a few days, we will have episode number three, Thomas Hearns' iconic fight against Jose Pepino Cuevas. And episode four will be next weekend. will come out next Sunday morning, and that will take a look at his... December 1982 iconic matchup with Puerto Rican legend 
Wilfred Benitez, as Hearns moved up to 154 pounds to uh, challenge Wilfred Benitez for his WBC Super Welterweight Championship. So until next time, when we talk the life and times of Thomas Hitman Hearns, parts three and then four, I want everybody out there to have a beautiful rest of your weekend, um, a beautiful start to your week, and to always be blessed and be a blessing.